I'm on. There we go. Joshua chapter 6. We're continuing to work through the book of Joshua, uh, basically chapter by chapter here. And uh, we're now six weeks in. And this morning we're going to be looking at this passage and seeing what God has done. We can understand more and more about who God is and how we know him. How, how do we know who God is? Who, who is God? And how do we know him? Think about for a minute, those of you that know me, if you're, if you're visiting this morning, I'm Jim Lehman. And you probably only know me, at least at this point, as the pastor, as the preacher, the one who's going to be bringing God's word. I prayed earlier in the service. But those of you who've known me for a little bit longer, how have you come to know me? Well, you've, you've come to know me based upon how I live in front of you. We've had interactions. We've had conversations. We've had a time uh, spent together, maybe personally or with our families, or uh, perhaps uh, you've seen me interact here in the church. You've come to know me through the way that I have made myself known to you, That's through how I have revealed myself or how I have disclosed myself. And the same thing is true about God, of course, at a more infinitely greater level. We know who God is on the basis of how he has revealed himself to us. God has made himself known And it is through that self-disclosure that we know his nature, we know his identity, we know his character. Without this self-revelation, we would know nothing about God. But by his grace, God has sort of drawn back the proverbial curtain, if you will. And he has unveiled himself so that we can know him and make definitive statements about him. How has God made himself known? Well, he's made himself known through creation. We saw that in our song, This is My Father's World. God has made himself known through creation. By his creative work, we know that there is a God, that God exists. And there are certain things that we know about him. David will say this in Psalm 19. Paul will say it in Romans chapter 1. There are certain things that we can know and understand about God merely through the creation. God has also revealed himself to us through our consciences. There is a sense, we have an inner innate sense that there is a God. And we know that even more because we have this inner sense of right and wrong. You don't have to be told right and wrong to know that there is, there are certain things that are right and wrong. Maybe you don't know everything, but there are certain things. And that inner sense of, of law, that inner sense of right and wrong is seared into our conscience so that we know that there is a God. And we know certain things about him, that there is a, he is, he's a just God. He's a God who does not permit evil. Well, God has also and most definitively revealed himself in his word. Throughout the course of history, God revealed himself in words and in actions. And he revealed himself most fully in Jesus Christ, whom we call the living word. And the witness of that revelation, God's words, God's actions, the life and ministry of Jesus, are for us, inspired for us in the Scriptures. The witness of that revelation is in the written Word of God. God's Word details not only that there is a God, but clearly and precisely who that God is. In fact, we sometimes use the word glory to speak about how God has revealed Himself to us. We think of the glory of God. The glory of God is simply the manifestation of God. God showing himself off in all of his greatness, in all of his perfections, in all of his beauty. Everything that God makes known about himself is the glorious manifestation of who he is. I like to say that glory is simply God showing off his godness. Is God simply letting himself be God, showing himself in the fullness of who he is outwardly. God has made himself known gloriously to us through his creation. He has made himself gloriously known to us through our consciences. And he has made himself gloriously known to us, most especially through his word. And it is through that revelation that we come to know who God is. So as we continue on this morning in our study of Joshua, we come today to the familiar account of the Battle of Jericho. And most of us probably know the children's song, right, about this. 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, right? We all know that. Except what we're going to discover today, if you haven't already realized it, is that Joshua did not fight, nor did he win the battle of Jericho. God fought the battle of Jericho. And God won the battle of Jericho. In the battle of Jericho, we see God's glory on display. God made himself known once again to Israel in a supernatural way so that they might know who he was. And so we want to look at that this morning. How did God reveal himself to Israel? What do we learn about God in this account? And this sermon originally was probably twice as long as I'm going to deliver to you this morning. Okay? There are many things that we can learn about God, but I want to highlight three things I think stand out at the very front of this passage about God. Let's look at Joshua chapter 6. Let's read the chapter, verse, uh, chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, to the end of the chapter. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of it of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came up, they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven, ra- seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire. And everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the, into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. 
Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So I'm going to highlight this morning three attributes that God gloriously reveals about himself. And I think we must understand if we are going to have an accurate understanding of who God is and have an accurate understanding of his gospel that saves us. So first, first attribute is his power. God's glory is displayed in his power. Now, we've seen already God's power at work in the book of Joshua. Back in chapters 3 and 4, God supernaturally stopped up the waters of the Jordan River so that Israel could, could cross over into the land of Canaan. We've also been reminded of God's miraculous power, his demonstration of his great power in times past, particularly when the Israelites left Egypt and God parted the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry ground, and how he defeated those those two kings in the Transjordan, Sihon and Og, and how, how God brought great victory to Israel in the battles that they fought against those kings. God reminded Joshua of these things when, when he came to his position of leadership. So, so they've experienced these things, and now God's reminding Joshua of them. And back in chapter 1, Rahab reported to the spies the things that the Canaanites had heard about God's power, and the Israelites had, had witnessed it. They witnessed it for themselves and as they crossed over from uh, the Transjordan into the land of Canaan by the Red Sea, and then uh, by, the, uh, by the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. They also had celebrated the Passover there once they got into the land to again be reminded of God's power in the Exodus. But here again in chapter 6, we are once again struck by God's power as he gives his people possession of this city. At the beginning of chapter 6, we notice in verse 1 that Jericho is on lockdown. The city is shut up. It's in a defensive posture so that no one can go out either to escape. You're going to need people to fight the battle. They don't want anybody escaping or to go give comfort and aid to the enemy. So no one can get out and no one can come in. No, no, so nobody can infiltrate the city, right? Nobody, the, the Israelites cannot make an attack. There's no attempt to sabotage or to, to lay siege against the city. And yet, even though the city is on lockdown, Jericho's resistance is futile. We've already learned about the Canaanites' great fear, their paralyzing fear at the presence of the Israelites in the land. Rahab had accounted in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, and the narrator in chapter 5, verse 1, that the hearts of the Canaanites melted and that there was no spirit, that there was no longer any spirit left within them. They had heard the reports about Yahweh's great power and what he had done for his people. And now Israel is encamped just a few miles away from Jericho. They understand that their destruction is coming and that there is absolutely nothing that they can do about it. The best thing they can try is to set up their city, but it is futile. In verses 2 through 5, we see that the Lord, who is, who is still probably manifest here in, as the commander of the army of the Lord that we saw back at the end of chapter 5, that the Lord is giving instructions now to Joshua about how they are to assault the city. And he begins by reminding Joshua of the certainty of their victory. If you look at verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I love how God speaks of the future occurrence of what will happen in the past tense. He is speaking about the destruction of Jericho, even though it hasn't happened yet. He says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. This is a completed thing. It's already been done in the mind, in the will of God. Before the battle of Jericho even takes place, victory has been accomplished, and Joshua, God tells us to Joshua to encourage him as the leader of Israel and to encourage the Israelites who will be going to war. The king of Jericho, the trained warriors of Jericho, the city's double walls, its defensive lockdown, pose no challenge to the omnipotent God. God will defeat Jericho, and he will give it into Israel's possession. His power is supreme, and he will do it. But what's interesting about this is that even though God is going to display his great power, Israel is going to be the means by which he displays his power. We see that coming up in verses 3 through 21. 
In verses 3 through 5, God gives Joshua the actual instructions on how to lay siege to the city. The Israelite men of war will march around the city once a day for six days, and then they will return to camp. So they're going to go out, walk around the city once, and then they'll go back to their camp. They're going to do that for six days. We also see they're going to be accompanied by seven priests who will blow their trumpets while they are processing around the city. So we're going to have these men marching around, these fighting men, the warriors of Israel, marching around. And with them are going to be these priests with seven trumpets who are going to blow their trumpets every time they march around the city. So on the, uh, as, they're, as they're marching, the men are marching. There's not a word to be said, but the priests are blowing their trumpet. And then in the center of this procession is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, we saw a few weeks ago, represented the God's very presence among his people. God is not merely with them, but he is acting on their behalf. He is going to do battle for them. In fact, I love what verse, uh, let's see what it is, verse 11 says, So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night. In other words, you have all these people that are marching around the city, but the emphasis there is on the ark of the Lord. God's presence would be among his people, again, not merely to be with them, but to actually do the battle, to fight the battle for them. So they're to march around, these fighting men, these seven priests blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant in a very precise order for six days, once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, they will make this procession again, but this time seven times. The priests will blow their trumpet as they march. And as they come to the end of their seventh lap, the the trumpets will, will go quiet, and Joshua give this, will give a signal. And when he gives that signal, all the fighting men, which are, according to Numbers chapter 26, are about 600,000. 600,000 men are going to shout with a loud shout. I can't imagine what 600, the voices of 600,000 men are going to be like shouting with a loud shout. But they will shout loudly. And God says that when they do, the walls of the city will collapse. And when that happens, then... The men are to go in, in a very orderly way into the city of Jericho and they are to destroy every living thing that they see. They should also gather all the gold, silver, bronze objects and iron objects and put them in the Lord's treasury. And then, having killed everyone, having taken all of those precious metal objects, they are to burn the city with fire, leaving it utterly desolate. And so in verses 6 and 7, Joshua relates those instructions to the Israelites. And then in verse 8, we see the Israelites faithfully obeying the Lord's command. They do everything that God commanded Joshua to do. And it is through their obedience that God gives Israel victory. In this plan, in this strategy, God brought his omnipotent power to bear upon Jericho. He is the one who defeated, who defeated Jericho. This is such an unorthodox battle strategy, which to be, again, going back to chapter 2, when God sent the spies into the land to gather information about Jericho, I think Joshua was being what a good military commander is supposed to do. He's doing his part. He's, he's doing what God has called him to do. But those spies, have nothing, they bring back nothing that will inform this battle strategy. This is not how the Israelites or any other peoples typically go to war. And yet, this is the very means by which God will bring his power to bear through them to bring destruction to Jericho. The people of Jericho were no match for God's strength and might. The Canaanites' fears about God's power and victory were indeed justified. God secured this incredible supernatural victory for his people. He proved the supremacy of his power in this unorthodox battle strategy. Can you imagine after the fact if any Israelite or Joshua himself would say, man, we did a good job there, didn't we? How in the world could that happen? This is something that only God could do. God was working this. God was showing his power. He was using his people as means to do it, but God brought the victory. God fought the battle of Jericho. There is no way they could claim credit for this victory in any way. But in this defeat, God displayed his glorious power. He defeated Jericho by his power. And it would be by that same power, though through more ordinary means, 
that God would defeat the rest of the Canaanite cities and so give Israel this land that he promised to them. So God revealed his power in the battle of Jericho. The Israelites saw once again another instance of God's omnipotence. And because of their covenant relationship with him, they could be sure that he would use his power for them and for their good. They are on the right side of God's power. Can you imagine being the Canaanites and being on the wrong side of God's power? What a great, what this should have engendered great humility among the Israelites, but also a great sense of gratitude that God was displaying his power for them and for his good. But God's power at Jericho, like his other displays of power in the Old Testament, points us to the supreme display of his power in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is in Christ's death and resurrection that God has defeated all of his enemies. The most heinous, the most powerful, the most uh, absurd powers that would rail against him, that would seek to oppose him, the enemies of sin and death and Satan. I'm going to do a little sermon insert. This isn't up there, Doug, but Jeff reminded me of this passage uh, in Sunday school, so I'm going to read it. It's totally appropriate. Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 19 to 21, we read there of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in who? In Christ. How? When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him above His right hand, uh, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is the great omnipotent power of God, and he displayed it supremely in Jesus' death and resurrection. This should be good news for us. This is good news for us. Because Jesus has defeated every enemy that we face in this life. He defeated death. He defeated the, 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 the enemy of death, the final enemy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So that no longer does death have any power over him or over us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, Paul writes, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When Jesus conquered death, Jesus neutered death's power. Death threw everything it had at Jesus. And yet Jesus conquered. Jesus overcame. Death no longer has any power over Christ. Christ has defeated death once and for all, forever. He's defeated it for good. But because God broke the power of death, not just for Christ, He broke His power over us, too. In Christ, though we may die, death's grip on us is not permanent. Just as He raised Jesus from the dead, He will also raise us up so that we might enter into the inheritance that He has promised for us in Christ. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Death no longer has a grip on us. It can no longer exercise its power over us because of what Christ has done. And that is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15:57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God defeated the power of sin, especially the power of sin in our lives. On the cross, what did Jesus do? He atoned for our sin. He paid the penalty that God required for our sins so that we would never have to bear God's judgment for our sins ourselves. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, our sins no longer condemn us. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, sin no longer reigns over our lives now. It no longer reigns over us in the future, but it no longer reigns over us now. In Romans 6, Paul tells us that we've been freed from sin's power because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Sin no longer reigns as a master over us. And that is why we can have victory over sin in this life. We can have victory over sinful desires. We can have victory over temptation. The very power that breaks sin, has broken its rule 
over us. In fact, God even gives us this very power, His resurrection power, so that we can live godly lives. Peter will write in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has broken the power of sin in our lives, and He has given to us His power to live in His victory, the victory He has accomplished for us in Christ's death and resurrection. In Christ's death and resurrection, God has also defeated Satan and all of His evil hosts who would deceive us and tempt us and strive to hold us in His power. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And we read of Satan's demise. We read of his defeat, his ultimate defeat, in Revelation 20, verse 10, when God takes the devil and throws him into the lake of fire, and there he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do not give yourselves over to a defeated foe. Do not give yourselves over to the temptation and the lies and the deceit of one who has already been condemned. That power, his power has been broken for us in the gospel, in the power of God through Christ's death and resurrection. God has worked powerfully in the gospel. And that is why Paul can say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Our hope and our life depends upon God's omnipotent power. Our God is mighty, and He provides the full dimension of His power in our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. God has been so gracious to give us His Holy Spirit so that we can live in the power of God. We are only enabled because the Holy Spirit is in us, working powerfully in us to do all that God has commanded us to do. He helps us to avoid sinfulness. He helps us to avoid temptation. He helps us to walk in the way of righteousness. And it is because of what God has done for us in Christ that we must sing with David in Psalm 21, verse 13, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. God's glory is displayed in his power. Secondly, we see that God's glory is displayed in his wrath. God's glory is displayed in his wrath. When we're thinking about all of the things of God, all the attributes of God, all the good things of God, this is probably not the thing that comes to mind first, if it even comes at all. When we think of God, we think of His greatness, we think of His glory, His beauty, His love, His grace, His compassion, His righteousness, His holiness. We don't typically think about God's wrath as being one of those attributes that displays His glory. That's something that is beautiful about Him. In fact, we typically shudder when we hear about God's wrath. I've had people, not in this church, but I've had people tell me before, you speak too much about the wrath of God. You speak too much about the judgment of God. Well, I speak what the Bible says. And there is a lot in what the Bible says about God's wrath. God is not God apart from His wrath. His wrath is an essential one of His attributes. And so when God is displaying His wrath, He is displaying His glory because that is who He is. Psalm 7, verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. That's just as much in the Bible as that God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. We need to uphold, we need to love and appreciate, be grateful for God's wrath. We see God exercise His wrath in the Battle of Jericho. In fact, the defeat of the Canaanites in Jericho is evidence of His wrath. He plundered and destroyed their city and handed possession of it over to the Israelites as an aspect of His wrath upon them. But did you notice also what God commanded the Israelites to do to the Canaanites living in Jericho? Look at verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then he goes on in verse, uh, verse 18. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing devoted for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And then in verse 21, it says they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. In other words, in everything living in the city of Jericho must be put to death. Every man and woman, all the young and all the old, oxen, sheep and donkey, all must die by the edge of the sword. Now, that, science, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? I mean, it's okay to say that. That sounds harsh. If we laid an assault to some community and killed them all by the edge of the sword, that would be very harsh. But this is a command that God has given to the Israelites. This command, in this translation, the ESV translation, is actually a phrase devoted to destruction. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's the word harem, not harem, harem. It's hard to translate. It's usually translated as devoted to destruction or the curse or the ban in some translations. This is one word, and it applies not only to Jericho, but it applies to all Canaanites living in the land. When God gives instructions for Israel to go to war, when he instructs them to fight against the Canaanites, they are to take no prisoners. Every Canaanite must be devoted to destruction because he commands it. There are no exceptions. Now, again, for us living in the 21st century, thinking that we're more enlightened, this command to devote everyone, everything to destruction seems harsh and cruel. And that harshness and cruelty is magnified when it comes from the lips of a God whom the Bible tells us is gracious and compassionate and merciful. Some have resorted to calling God's command here genocide or ethnic cleansing. So what do we do? This seems a very unusual to us. It seems very harsh to us. And yet we see that God commands us. So how do we understand this command? Why would God command the Israelites to devote the Canaanites, all of them, to destruction? Well, Scripture gives us two reasons throughout the Old Testament. First, this idea of harem, this idea of devoting everything to destruction, is God's righteous judgment for sin. Harem is God's righteous judgment for sin. The Canaanites were sinners, and they deserved God's wrath and judgment as punishment for their sins. Back in Genesis 15, God, when God confirms his covenant to Abraham, he says there that he was going to give the Israelites the land of Canaan. That's one of the main promises he gives to Israel. But he says in Genesis 15:16 that he would not give them the land of Canaan, until the iniquity of the Amorites was complete. In other words, there's going to be a gap of time between Abraham and the time Israel actually takes possession of the land. It's going to be a little bit of time, over 400 years. And the reason for that delay is because the iniquity of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Canaanites, was not yet complete. In other words, what God is telling Abraham here is that Abraham's descendants will be the means of God's wrath against the Canaanites for their sins. When they go into the land and they put all the Canaanites to destruction, they are being destroyed. They are being killed as an act of God's righteousness, as an act of God's wrath for their sins. In their idolatry, in their immorality, in their rejection of God, the Canaanites have sinned against God. And because Scripture says the wages of sin is death, the Canaanites deserve God's wrath. Now, God, in his patience and his providence, gave the Canaanites opportunities to respond to the revelation that he had given them. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the personal words of God. They didn't have the great acts of God, other than what they heard about the Exodus and what they had witnessed with the crossing of the Jordan River. They knew from creation that God existed. They knew from their consciences that God existed. But they did not submit themselves to this one true God. They rejected every revelation that God gave to them. And so when, in God's providence, their iniquities became complete, 
God sent the Israelites to bring his judgments against them for their sin. The second reason why God gave this command of harem is to remove every impediment and every temptation that would detract Israel from covenant fidelity to God. Think about this. Israel's going in to take possession of this new land. God's giving them this land. They're going to live in covenant relationship with God. God is giving them his word and his law so that they would know how to live in the fullness of God's blessing. And yet side by side, they're living with polytheistic, idol-worshipping, immoral Canaanites. What do you think is going to happen? You can probably testify from your own experience in your own life. Being a Christian and being around a bunch of non-Christian people. Maybe that's in your teenage years, got involved with a bad group. Maybe in college you ran around with the wrong crowd. Maybe at work your co-workers were all non-Christians and they were leading you astray. It usually is that we are led to sinfulness more than they are led to righteousness. Right Now, we're to be witnesses. We're to be salt and light in the world. We're not to extract ourselves and isolate ourselves from the world. But if we're not careful, this, the sinfulness of others is a strong and powerful influence that Satan will use to make us become like them. And so God commands that the Israelites wipe out completely the Canaanites so that the Canaanites would not corrupt Israel's holiness and lead them to break covenant with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, the Lord says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, and clears away many nations before you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So for Israel's life, for Israel's blessing, for Israel's covenant, God gave them the command to destroy all the Canaanites. So this command of harem is actually a gracious command. Because if they don't, wipe out all the Canaanites and become like the Canaanites, then what's going to happen to them? They're going to receive the same kind of fate that God commanded that the Canaanites received. This was a good and gracious command of God for his people. But for the Canaanites, this was not good news because they were experiencing, suffering, the wrath of Almighty God. Again, in the display of God's wrath, we see the glory of God. In His wrath, we see God displaying His holiness and His righteousness, His utter goodness and His perfections. We see that He is the Creator and the Sovereign King to whom we owe our lives and to whom we must render allegiance. We see that He will not entertain rivals and He will not cede authority to others. We see that His reign is sure and that His ways will prevail. What we see here in the Wrath of God against the Canaanites is a foreshadowing of God's wrath that is coming against all men because of their wickedness. We could do right here, do a whole commentary on Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Let me just read verse 18, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, Paul's not singling out the Canaanites. He's really singling out everyone. Because sin is not just a Canaanite problem. It's a human problem. In fact, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if you're not a Christian, we look into God's Word and we see the Canaanites and we see an accurate picture of ourselves. We may not bow down to physical idols that the, like the Canaanites did, but we are idolaters. We may not be criminals, but we've broken God's law. We may be moral outwardly, but inwardly we are corrupt. Romans 3, 10 through 12 states God's indictment against us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Because we are a sinful people, living before a holy God, we deserve God's wrath. Again, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Wages is a payment. You go to work and you get a wage. You're paid for the work that you do. The payment that we ought to receive from God for our sins is death. And not just death in this life, but death eternally. We deserve to be devoted to destruction. In fact, the destruction of the Canaanites foreshadows the greater, fuller, and final judgment at the end of the age when God brings history to a close. He will judge all men and those not in Christ whose iniquity has become full will be sentenced to an eternal condemnation in hell where the flame is not quenched and the worm does not die and there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it will not be because God is cruel or vindictive. It will be because God is good and just and righteous. Sinners will get what they deserve. In fact, God intended that Israel understand the danger and consequence of sin. Did you notice in verses 26 and 27 that Joshua pronounces a curse on anyone who rebuilds Jericho? That seems kind of odd, right? Especially when you consider that God is giving the Canaanites, giving the Israelites the whole land of Canaan. This is their land. He is giving it to them as a possession. Why not? Why should they not be able to take that and do with it as God would, would, would allow them to do? Well, we understand from this chapter that Jericho belongs to God. Jericho is a special exception. It is set aside. It is for God. Everything that is in the city is devoted to destruction. All that is taken, the gold and silver and, and the objects of iron and bronze, those are all put in the treasury of the Lord. This city belongs to God. And God requires that it not be rebuilt as an enduring reminder of what happened to the Canaanites, an enduring reminder of sin and the judgment it merits, lest Israel forsakes the Lord and becomes like the Canaanites. It's kind of like that memorial we talked about a few weeks ago that Joshua set up of the 12 rocks, right? To remind the Israelites of what God did to stop the waters of the Jordan and allow Israel to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Here is another memorial, another reminder. Whenever the people of Israel are traversing the land of, uh, of Canaan, the land, the land that God give, gives to them, and they see this desolate city, it's a reminder. That's what God did to sinful people. It's a reminder that I not walk in those steps. It's a reminder that I live in the way that God has called me to live. So we see God's glory, God's glory displayed in his wrath. But we also see finally God's glory displayed in his mercy. God's glory is displayed in his mercy. So we've just spent a lot of time talking about God's wrath. But we also see that God is merciful. He displays his mercy. And those two things are not contradictory. They are true at the same time. Again, we see that God commanded that all of the Canaanites be devoted to destruction except for Rahab, the prostitute, and her family. Well, why this exception? If they're all to be just devoted, you go back and read that passage in Deuteronomy 7, no one's to be left out. Why is God making a special exception for Rahab? I mean, after all, she's a prostitute. The poor woman, even after she confesses faith in God and becomes an Israelite, is still known as Rahab the prostitute. How would you like that? How would you like your sins hanging around your neck for the rest of your life? Maybe it was a reminder of God's grace. I don't know. But here she is. She's a prostitute. How much more sinful can she be? And how much more deserving of God's wrath can she be? Now, if you weren't with us back at Joshua chapter 2, you're welcome to go to the website. There's a whole sermon on that chapter. We've talked about Rahab already in the special case that she is. But just to kind of summarize, God had sent two, or Joshua had sent two spies to Jericho to bring back information about the city. Again, probably using that information to create some kind of a battle strategy that is obviously not going to be utilized because God has a different plan. But as they go into the city, Rahab takes these spies into her home and she hides them from the authorities who have gotten wind of the fact that, that they were there. Before she helps them to flee, Rahab confessed her faith in Yahweh. She confessed her faith in Israel's God. She confessed her faith that this God, their God, was the Lord of all the earth. She, like the rest of the Canaanites, had heard the astounding reports 
of what God had done for his people. And she had also drawn the terrifying conclusion that not only her people, but her especially, would be devoted to destruction. And so she pleads with the spies for mercy. She recognizes Yahweh's lordship and she casts herself upon his mercy in hopes that she might be saved. Of course, we learn from the New Testament that Rahab is a model of faith. She's in this chapter which extols all the Old Testament saints for their faithfulness. Here it is, Rahab is a model of faith. Hebrews 11.31, by faith Rahab the prostitute. (laughs) How many hundreds of, a thousand years maybe? After Israel's come into the land? More than a thousand. Twelve hundred or so, thirteen hundred. She's still known as Rahab the prostitute. She did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But behind that friendly welcome to the spies was evidence of her faith. Why is she giving them a friendly welcome? Because she believed that there was a God in heaven. She believed that Yahweh was that God and that he was the Lord of all the earth. And so she is trusting and professing her faith in God, this God of Israel, as the sovereign God of all creation, the sovereign God even of the land of Canaan. And she chooses to follow after him, to place herself on his mercy. And God, because he is a God of mercy and grace and compassion, grants her that mercy. So when the Israelites attacked Jericho, she and everyone who was in her house were not devoted to destruction. God sent, or Joshua sent those two spies that had spied out the land back to Jericho, brought Rahab and her family out, and they bring her into the safety of the covenant community. Not only does she become a part of Israel, but by God's gracious providence, she becomes a matriarch in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. How merciful and how gracious is our God. Rahab's inclusion in the story of Jericho's defeat reminds us that God's mercy is another essential element to understanding the gospel. Though we deserve death and hell, God has shown us mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, y'all are Canaanites. We're all Canaanites. We're sinful people. We deserve the wrath of God. Verse 4, Lloyd-Jones says the two most precious words in all the Bible, but God. But God being what? Rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. The wrath that our sins deserved, Christ bore in his body. He hung on the cross bearing our sin, God pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. Why? Not because he deserved it, but because I did. Jesus stood in my place. He suffered the wrath of God that I deserved. What more mercy could there be? Jesus paid the penalty so that my sins could be forgiven, so that I could be brought into a new relationship with God, and so that I might inherit eternal life. Paul writes of this as well in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, which we're going to talk about Tuesday night in the men's Bible study. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, what did he do? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but how? According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why does God show us mercy? It is because he is merciful. He delights in showing mercy to sinners. And so Rahab gives us hope. She is a picture of the gospel. She is a picture for what God has done for us if we are trusting in Christ. And it's a picture of what God will do for you if you're not a Christian, if you will repent of your sins 
and trust in Christ. That would be my appeal today if you are not a Christian. I would call you to see what you really are. To see that you are a sinner. To see that you are a Canaanite deserving of God's wrath. That you ought to be devoted to destruction. And I would call you at the same time to throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ by repenting of your sins and trusting in Him. He will save you just as He saved Rahab. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So who fought fought the battle of Jericho? It was not Joshua. It was God. And who won the battle of Jericho? It was not Joshua. It was God. And bringing this victory, God made himself known to his people. Not only so that they would know him intellectually, know it as facts, as information, but so that they might know him covenantally, that they might live in relationship with him. The glory that God revealed about himself was meant to incite the glory of their praise to him in return. God would be Israel's God, and Israel would be God's people. And as they dwelt in the land of promise, God would abide with them, and they would abide in God's very presence. They serving Him, and He blessing them. Friends, this is infinitely more true for us in the New Covenant. In John chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Christ has made God known to us so that we might know Him, not merely intellectually, but covenantally, so that we might abide with Him forever. He is our God and we are his people. May the glory that he displayed to us in Christ lead us to return glory to him in eternal praise and thanks. He is our God and we are his people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, we We tremble before you. We see you are a God of incredible power. We see you are a God of wrath, a God who feels indignation every day. And so we ask with the psalmist, Lord, that if you remembered our sins, who of us could stand? And we know the answer, Lord, that none of us could. But the omnipotent God and the wrathful God is also the merciful God. And he delights in showing mercy to sinners. And so we are grateful and we are humble. And we receive that mercy in Christ. We trust him as the one who can save us through his sacrifice, his blood shed upon the cross for us. We gratefully receive that. We gratefully walk in your goodness. We gratefully live within the bounds of the new covenant so that we might live in your presence forever and ever. We can live in your presence now. We can live in your presence eternally. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. I pray you'd help us to delight in that, to rejoice in that truth and that fact, but that that would embolden us even more to live righteous and holy lives before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.